made it Valentine. Thank you. You're welcome. It's blank. No. It said it was, says I love you. That's a weird. You know that I don't really. Um, you know that all them times say I love you. Yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> Does that mean that you have a crush on me? Oh, no, I don't. I really didn't. I don't. I don't have a crush on you. I just love you. That makes no sense. I made a valentine for you. Thanks. You know what it says? What? I can't read and I don't know how to spell anything. But it says that I... I'm happy that Valentine's Day. Why didn't you write that you love me on mine? I don't love you. I just like you. No. Does that mean you have a crush on me? No, it, it doesn't. It means that I just know that um, Valentine's Day is special. So it we, I give Valentine's notes that say, Happy Valentine's Day. Why don't you love me? Um, I don't know. If I would, I, I would say that. <laughs> well, there you have it. <laughs> love is complicated. And today, uh, we are in week two of our series, Like It, Love It, Hate It, and we timed it clearly so that love it is before Valentine's Day, and hopefully the day of Super Bowl, when we love what we see. Um, today, we are going to be talking about love it, loving the way that Jesus would. And, and I say would, instead of did, because Jesus, of course, wasn't in a long-term relationship. He, he wasn't married. He didn't have a nuclear family that, that, that he founded. He was a, a beloved and faithful child to his mom and dad um, and brother to his stepbrothers and all that thing. But um, Jesus does have some advice, some wisdom for us, and we're going to start unpacking that very shortly. So I want to talk, uh, remind you, last week as we started this with Like It, which was about friendship, I brought out four different kinds of love that we find in the in the kind of late Hellenistic Greek world. And this was the, the kind of concepts that we see throughout the New Testament and one that C.S. Lewis popularized in his book, The Four Loves. And just as a re reminder, we have Eros, Storge, Philea, and Agape. Last week, we talked about Philea. We didn't do it this week because we are playing a team from Philadelphia. <clears throat> so we wanted to get that out of the way. Um, just saying... But the other three, let's, uh, let's address with some sort of vigor. Storge is the feeling of love that develops when you're with people a lot. And honestly, that includes our family. If you have a family that you just adore because they're wonderful and perfect, then, then you're lucky. 
But a lot of us have folks that we, friends and people in our family that we really, really love. But sometimes, you know, there's a little trying episodes here and there. And so we, but we love them anyway because we're together and we've made a commitment to each other. And we grow more and more warm and fond of each other as we spend the days together. Now, the same thing happens on a, on a team, a sports team, a work team. It can happen in your, your fraternity, sorority, or just your high school group you hang out with. So being together does create a feeling of, of love at some level. And, and that's what the word storge in the Greek means. Um, you see in this uh, slide here, you see a mom holding her child. That is not just the endorphins and all the other hormones that come from, from giving birth and from being that close and being that centered on your child. It also has to do with your decision to stay close to this infant for the rest of his or her life. So storge is this closeness, familial, and, and intimacy over time kind of love. The other two loves are, of course, agape. That's what we'll be talking about next week. When, when we think about and try to incorporate in our lives the kind of love that loves us despite all our failings and flaws. I mean, this is the kind of love we had for the chiefs, say, before Mahomes. Right? It was this in spite of love that that shows our gratitude to God for loving us that way, and it allows us to love others with that same sort of forgiving, grace-filled, overlooking faults kind of heart. But then today, <clears throat> Valentine's Day pre-weekend, we're talking about eros. Now, eros, if, if you turn that into the adjective erotic, you kind of have some idea of what that might mean. Um, but, as I mentioned also last week, erotic love in the philosophical sense isn't just about what... Uh, one person has for another that they're attracted to. It's the very concept of being attracted to someone because of attributes or some things that they have. So before I leave the chiefs completely behind and you know get into this sacred stuff, um, let me ask, how many of you are going to watch a football game today of any sort or kind, right? Okay, good. All right, even those of you that aren't in red, I'm glad to see you're with the team. And basically, what are you going to be eating during the game? Or are you like an abstinent football fan? You just only barbecue ribs. Hey, have I got a guy for you outside? Uh, <laughs> for those of you that are watching online, we are having a, this giant smoked rib and sausage uh, youth fundraiser today. So wish you were here, but it smells really good outside. Um, yeah, so that'll be what we're, we're eating. Does anybody like dips? Chips and dips? So, so I'm a dip guy. Well, that didn't, that didn't come out as like in high school it would have. So... And for some reason, I thought Chiefs Red and Torchies, devilish tacos, were the right thing to bring. So anyway, I just wanted to give you some examples of the things. So Triscuits are my choice of, of dip scoop because they're a little bit higher calorie than other crackers, but they allow for some good heft and uh, they bear weight. So I've got um, any fans of hummus? All right, all right. Good to see some uh, Jesus food lovers. Um, Moving to the Paul, the Greco-Pauline world, anybody love tzatziki? Yeah, all right, yeah. We're big tzatziki at our house. What about spinach artichoke parmesan dip? Okay, yeah, there was a deeper growl for that. I'm hearing it. And then, okay, as far as like erotic, like attachment to food goes, this is my sweetheart. Plucky pickle dip. I just found this at Costco. So let me tell you, this is worth snuggling up with. It's really good. 
But anyway, I guess there is there a tie to the sermon? Yes, I hope so. Okay, here we go. <laughs> what what I want to talk about is is marriage. Marriage sometimes starts out awkwardly, like the Valentine video, like Napoleon Dynamite, right? Um, there are awkward beginnings, some trials and error. When we try to pick which of the possibilities that God's putting in our life, we are going to fall in love with. And maybe it's none of the, maybe you're not going to fall for any of the four dips you meet in high school, right? <laughs> maybe God has a different plan. My wife did, luckily. I was the most impressive dip that she knew. Um, but I want to get something out of the way before we continue, and that is there's a myth about marriage, and we need to dispel it. The myth is that there's only one person for you in the world. There's only one true love. There's only one special person. There's only one soulmate possibility for you in the world. I mean, you do the math, right? And do the math back in, in any smaller society where they didn't have like all these apps where you could find other people on, right? Just the people in your village, those are the people you knew. And maybe a cousin's village, you might know somebody. And those are the, those are the prospects, and if you think there's really only possibility one soulmate for you in the whole gigantic world, you're not being realistic, and you're not actually being biblical. You see, there is more than one possible person for you in the world. That's the truth. But the joy of marriage is committing to one of them. Committing to one of them. Now, I don't know if, if you talk as frankly as Laura and I do, but I'm like, okay, actuarially, honey, you come from good stock, and you're a woman, and I'm hyper, and I'm a guy, so probably you're going to outlive me. So this is what you ought to look for in a new husband, all right? And I give her a list, like, okay, find somebody who's better at carpentry than I am. Find somebody who will finish the projects that I started. <laughs> and then she's like, oh, I don't need any other husband after you. I'm like, need or want? And she goes, hmm. <laughs> so, so Yeah. Jesus didn't speak directly into marriage, but he spoke a lot into it. He didn't, he didn't speak into marriage particularly, but he does speak into love and relationships and the wisdom of being a child of God on the way, on the road of Jesus. And so that's what I want to talk about for the bulk of the sermon. If you have your Bibles or, of course, your phones, um, pull them up to Matthew 5, and we're going to start with chapter or verse 3. So, these are the Beatitudes. We've preached on them here. You've heard them in lots of settings. You've probably heard them on podcasts. You've heard them on, on well, since you've been a kid. But very seldom do we look at marriage and long-term partner relationships through the lenses of these Beatitudes. Beatitudes means the blessings, the words of blessings. So I want you to think about as we read these, what are the blessings for your long-term relationship that you can take out of these Beatitudes. And this first one is this, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So I would translate this as saying, tell your partner or spouse how much you need them, what a treasure they are to you, but don't need them so much that they feel like they're being kidnapped, that, that they're hostages to your neediness. Because if you do that, they're going to stop, they're going to need to stop being needed by you, right? People, your spouse doesn't complete you. Your boyfriend doesn't complete you. Not at all. Because there's other people who could complete you. 
The reality is if you are healthy enough to be too strong, independent, connected to God, but not over-connected to need each other all the time, you will have a much heavier, a, a much longer relationship together and the kingdom of heaven will be yours. So yeah, marriage partners want to feel like they're cuddled, not like they're kidnapped. So give your, give your spouse a little space, no matter how much you love them. Um, I've had to learn this from Laura. She loves me a lot. She swears she does. But there's a lot of times where she'd rather cuddle up with a book, say, than with a random husband who's in the house. And uh, so I give her that book time. I mean, I give her. I respect her book time. And then I have my wife back because she got to be non-stressed by a book as opposed to stressed by her husband. <laughs> so that is important. If you want your marriage to last, you have to give some distance between yourself. All right, next one. God blesses those who mourn for they will be comforted. So, so this is important because a good relationship allows one hurting or scared or wounded or anxious partner to be able to lean on the other. But, but in, that, in that leaning, well, you know what happens if, if you lean in one direction and, and there's not a well-anchored wall or, or person you're leaning against, eventually you either knock them over or they stay there as a stiff wall and never have a chance to lean back into you. So share your downs with your spouse, but don't, don't let them drown in them. Don't let them drown in your downs just because you need to share them with someone. That's what, that's what friends are for. That's also what counselors are for. Share your downs, but, but be enough composed that they can share theirs with yours too. And sometimes spouses feel guilty. Say if you're if your spouse is going through something traumatic it, relationally at work or emotionally and with family or just having a really bad episode, a mental health crisis or something, it's, it's really easy to support them for a long amount of time, but at some point you need support back. And so try to be as conscious as you can that your spouse needs you to be a rock for them just as they are for you. An old minister once told me, Marriage is one, a man and woman become one. The difficulty starts when they try to pick which one. <laughs> and for a marriage to last a long time, for a relationship, even not marriage, to last a long time, you have to be able to lean on each other. Because healthy conflict is good. We all hear about that, especially if you're in the work world. Healthy conflict, it drives performance, it increases productivity, and it makes your team the most productive and successful possible, all through at work. But even at home, healthy conflict can get exhausting, right? It's a, it's a place where we need to be refreshed. It's kind of our, our, our daily halftime is to be home. And so conflict is unavoidable if, in, the, in the family. But if there's always conflict, even the healthy kind, it's draining. And we need to, we need to have enough self-possession to know that we can't always light up a conflict at home, no matter what we think or feel, or pretty soon we're going to burn down the relationship that, that God's hoped that we would have for the rest of our life. All right. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the earth. I didn't actually find a picture because all the humble people, they didn't to get their pictures taken. But I, I do have a few quotes. Um, Ralph Sockman says, True humility, True humility is intelligent self-respect, which makes us modest by reminding us how far we have come short of where we can be. 
and, and a more succinct one by C.S. Lewis again, one of uh, our Christian recent heroes. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Thinking of, thinking of yourself in a self-aware, sometimes self-critical way, very useful in any environment, marriage especially. But, but think of yourself in relationship to the blessings that you have been given in this partner or spouse that you have. So the next one, uh, I'm not going to do all the Beatitudes, but a majority of them here. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. If you, like Laura and I, you know people that are so passionate for a noble cause, whether it's a, a justice cause or whether it's a, a, a patriotic cause or whether you know people who together as a couple are more powerful and convincing and energized by, by pursuing a mission on their hearts from God that they do together. But there's also gentler ways that you can do that. You don't have to fully sign up to be a crusader for any one cause to have this come true in your life for you to be satisfied. Sometimes hungering and thirsting for justice just means you do righteous things with your spouse frequently enough that you mutually encourage each other. That this is the kind of life that God will bless if we can bless others outside our walls, outside our family. If we can, we can share not just our time, but our treasure with, with needy causes, with kingdom causes, with church causes outside of our family. This is how we can be satisfied. And, and speaking of satisfied, do you think that's a wide-angle lens on that guy's bicep? Or is that some sort of app on the new iPhone? Because I'm an Android guy. I don't know. But I'm like, if I could get that app for my selfies, boom. I would post a lot more on Facebook and Insta. Let me just tell you. Um, yeah. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I think all of us know this in our life. If we are, are grace-filled, compassionate, and quick to forgive, it's amazing how those same things happen back to you. If they don't, you're probably in a lopsided relationship that needs another closer look. But this is one of the main reasons why we, we shrug off wrongs against us. We shrug off things. Now, unless they're really pointed or they continue in a way that seems to be like, I think, I'm I think she's trying to tell me something. Now, that's a different issue. But the small things that, that can wound us, they can be so destructive to a marriage or even long-term friendship, not just because you feel bad, but because you make them feel bad. Oh, I, I didn't mean that, honey. I'm sorry. I was just being bad with my words again. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Does it start to you see what I'm doing here? I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to upset you. All of a sudden, something can go from being an apology to a, a, a can go from being an equalizing experience to almost an abusive experience where you're afraid of what you say or do, you're walking on eggshells because your wife or your husband is going to get mad. Not necessarily in a violent way, just like, oh my gosh, the energy it takes not to make her mad or not to get him angry. I mean, those are warning signs. So we need to be people who show mercy and be shown mercy. And it's not just about, it's not just about marriages and romantic relationships. I was talking once, um, this, uh, this person is... Uh, not, not a part of Caw Prairie, but I, I was talking, she, she at one time was, I was talking with her, and it seems like once a month, 
she had a story about her sister. Her sister had, I mean, I've never, I didn't never met her sister. And if I only took this sister that I knew, her opinion, I would have a pretty low opinion of this sister. But after several months of at least once a month hearing about this bad sister, I started wondering, which sister should I really be concerned about? You know, it's like when you drive to work and you, 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 there's a jerk on the highway, then you met a jerk. But if every day you drive to work and there's always a jerk on the highway, guess what? <laughs> yeah. So that's the, that's the metaphor that always comes to mind because it's not too far from my lived reality. <laughs> she, she said to me this, this really painful thing that, to hear. And I could just see she was wounded to the core. But then lots of things seemed to wound her to the core. And finally she said, you know, she didn't even ask my forgiveness. And after several months of this, a little snarky slipped out. And I said, man, she sounds like a bad Christian. And her sister says, yes. And then she stopped. She's like, well, maybe, maybe I could have forgiven her anyway. I'm like, bingo, bingo. Yeah, because the, the, the past Bishop William Willimon, a United Methodist bishop that I, that I read a lot, that a lot, of, uh, a lot of my friends are close to. The past cannot be erased, but it can indeed be forgiven. In fact, the, the writer of Hebrews, who we don't know exactly who it was, maybe it was a woman, probably it was a guy, look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Now, obviously, this is spoken to a church setting, right? So that's why the, this corrupting many. But if you look at it from the family, family systems thing, if you have a root of bitterness growing up within you because of how you perceive that you're treated or are treated by your partner or spouse, this root of bitterness that's taken root in your heart is going to cast bitter fruit not just in your relationship but on those of your children, on those of your coworkers. Because a bitter root doesn't just drop fruit straight down. The fruit of a bitter root goes all sorts of directions. So I think in marriage, one of the things that I think Laura and I have learned implicitly is there are many times in a marriage when you've got to decide which is more important to me. Is it more important to me to be right? Or is it more important to me to be together? Well, Laura's mostly right. Hi, sweetie. But if there were a time, she, I, this is what I would think. So, um, and then finally, it's all, all this kind of hard stuff. But I, I want to talk about the joy of marriage, which you're like, finally, it's Valentine's Day, PD. Um, I want to mention that Jesus says this, now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have, just as I have loved you, so you should love one another, each other. Now, um, Andy Stanley, who wrote, uh, writes tons of books uh, from Atlanta, Georgia, he does, he wrote the book Irresistible. I preached on that, a whole series, uh, right as COVID was beginning. It's an amazing book talking about old and new covenant kind of love and old and new covenant kind of purposes. But he makes this observation about this particular passage. He says, when most Christian people hear this, this read, they think, oh, so we need to love each other like Jesus did so that we would die for one another and go to the cross like Jesus did for us. And Andy's like, eh, 
look at the timeline. Jesus didn't say this after he was crucified, died, and resurrected. He said this while they were still on earth together, before his, his arrest. So he was talking about love one another in the same way that I've loved you in these last three years as we've gone together on the same road. Miles and miles of road together we have walked. Love one another like I've loved you there. And how did he love them there? You know what? He called them. He called them to follow them. He promised to and successfully followed through on training them how to be better people, training them how to be better leaders, training them to have something in their life that was more important than just the knowing where the next meal was going to come from, and even more important than the deep love many of them had for their families. He trained them, he, pro he protected them, he fed them, or he got other supporters to feed them. I mean, that's kind of, he provided for them. But most of all, he invited them into a story that was bigger than they could ever ask for or imagine. In, in church terms, we would say he invited them on the mission. You know what? In real life terms, I would say that he did what we want our marriages to be. He invited them on the adventure of a lifetime. The adventure of a lifetime that the two of them, the two of us with our spouse, could take following God, laughing at the things that go well, and shrugging off the things that don't just like the disciples who followed Jesus did too. So I do want to remind us that, you know, Jesus wasn't married. Jesus didn't have a long-term relationship. I mean, at least not that they record, maybe a few Valentines that we don't know about, you know, in the teenage years. But once the Gospels open up with the story, there's no relationship. He didn't know what that meant. And so the advice that he and then the Apostle Paul in particular give us is meant for all situations in life, but again with an eye toward marriage, I would like you to hear these words again from Colossians 3. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves inside your marriage with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And above all, clothe yourself with love which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ dwell in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and be thankful. A peaceful, graceful spirit and a heart of gratitude. And then Paul finishes up by saying this, let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives, teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Permit me one more video.
for some of us, our life has turned out the way we planned in every element. For those of you that that's happened to, I'm like, hallelujah, God is good. For most of us, life has diverted a little bit from the plan we had. We've had hurts and disappointments. We've had big misses ourselves and heartbreaks as a family. We've had physical pain. We've had premature mortality. We've had lots of suffering. And unless we're called the singleness, which is a thing and a beautiful thing, most of us long for a partner to share our joy and our disappointments with. So we look to be married. And as I close, I'm just going to remind us that love is not always about did I marry the right person? Because there are other people besides the spouse you have chosen and have pledged faithfulness to. There are other persons beside that in the universe, in the world, that could have been your spouse. It's not the question of did I marry the right person. Love is mostly about am I the right person? In fact, never have I ever asked, for those of you I have married, or for those who were married elsewhere, Never does a minister ask, or should they, do you love this man? Do you love this woman? The way that the liturgy for marriage goes is, will you love this man? Will you love this woman? Because love begins with feelings, but it lasts by decisions. And so, as we close, my friends, I'm asking you to acknowledge that love is an act of will. Love is the result of constant decisions. Constant decisions that not only show your faithfulness, but show your gratitude for the person that God has put in your life to be your companion on the road. I challenge you, this Valentine's Day, not just to be romantic, but to be reflective. I challenge you to have a high score, scramble ability, low injury marriage, with lots of cheering. I challenge you, to do that so that my prayer will be at the end of it all. You will find you have lived on this road with a close circle of friends and a beloved companion whom you can travel the best miles with on the road of life and the deepest journey with on the way of Jesus.